The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Happy holidays. <laughs> Welcome to a holiday episode of Security Clearance and Security on Federal News Radio. I'm Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com, joined by Jill Hamilton, senior editor at clearancejobs.com. We're going to talk about some holiday-related hang-ups that can affect your security clearance eligibility. Basically, it gives us a chance to unpack some hot topics in the security clearance process. These are topics that continue to come up, I would say, year after year, article after article, in terms of issues that can affect clearance eligibility, but that do tend to spike around the holidays. So I'm just going to kind of run down the list of some of those topics. The first one is what I like to call a little bit too much holiday spirits. So the statistics actually show that DUIs go up over the holidays. So I know, Jill, we've written a, a lot of content about this. I know our security clearance attorney, Sean Bigley, has written about DUIs in the security clearance process. Kind of how do DUIs show up in the clearance process? I mean, what is some of our content around that that you've seen over at clearancejobs.com? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, alcohol consumption is one of the adjudicated guidelines. But also, you know, like you said, when you get a DUI, that also you know, can come with a record and then that can hit somewhere else and ping you elsewhere. So I think also to think of self-reporting where clearance holders have to self-report. If you do happen to get a DUI over the holidays or any other time of the year, you definitely want to self-report that as opposed to letting the system pick that up on its own because that definitely looks a lot worse. It's just so easy, I think, to not think... (laughs) To not be careful about, you know, driving while under the influence when you're going to all these holiday parties. There's more cops that are who are out and it is something to keep in mind, especially as a clearance holder. I mean, as a citizen, you know, it's a good thing to keep in mind, but <laughs> As a clearance holder, especially when your job is impacted by the choices that you make and is a reflection on you, it is something to keep in mind with all the holiday parties you're going to. You know, I'm from the Midwest, so I whisper it. I'm I'm from the Midwest. I could be from the Washington, D.C. Metro. Who knows? I could be from anywhere. But the access to taxis and cabs used to be an issue. I'm just saying. Uber has made it a little bit easier lift the ride-sharing applications. I think that you have fewer excuses when it comes to DUIs and when you're out there just Something I'd love to see companies even offer following a holiday party, like, hey, take an Uber back, you know, to your home or to and from. It might seem more expensive or silly to take a ride or to ride with somebody else to an event. But I'm going to tell you from seeing some previous cases around it, it will be a lot cheaper to get a ride share than it will be to hire an attorney to address your DUI. A single DUI, we generally would not cause security clearance denial or revocation, unless for some reason the government sees it as a pattern of behavior. And I think he has seen cases where they said, this might be your only DUI, but we do think this this is the only time you've gotten caught. 
So the hard and fast rules in the security clearance process are never hard and fast. There's always a lot of gray matter area. They're going to use the whole person concept to establish that. And like you said, the DUI would fall under a criminal conduct issue. The alcohol consumption is, do we think that you have a pattern of alcoholism that's unaddressed? Do we think that you have alcohol issues? And then is the DUI a symptom of alcohol issues? So maybe speak to that. Do you have any thoughts on like, why is alcohol consumption an adjudicative guideline? How does that kind of point back to the clearance process? If it's a pattern that's impacting your either level of trustworthiness or being able to be trusted with classified information on a regular basis or impacting your judgments, you know, there's a lot of different security procedures that you have to abide by in a SCIF. And if it's impacting your work-life balance on a day-to-day or even weekly basis, you're more likely to overlook security procedures. You could be more likely to overlook how classified documents could be handled. So it's really about risk management for the federal government. They're not trying to say you've had one too many whiskeys or however many you're supposed to have. They're not really weighing in on that. They're just weighing in on what kind of risk that you are posing to the federal government and how you can handle their classified information and protect national security. That's what their interest is, is protecting national security. So anytime it's going to impact And really, they want people in the system who are going to take ownership for their choices, or if they see a change in their own personal behavior, they're going to actually go and get help. So that's not a slam against you to get help. It's actually can look as like you're making wise choices and you can be trusted because you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be trusted and making those wise decisions. That was like fantastic. No, I <laughs> love that. Because again, we get those questions all the time. Like why in the heck is XYZ adjudicative guideline? Well, it is about risk management for the government. Believe it or not, there are smart people in the federal government kind of establishing what this framework looks like. And these issues alcohol consumption can point back to, again, the issues of reliability and trustworthiness. So if you have an issue with alcohol, it becomes a matter of not the alcohol itself, but how that points to your judgment and reliability. And we know that alcohol can impair your judgment, especially if you have major issue with consumption. So the issue is when it comes into addiction, when it comes to how it affects your behavior. And again, the DUI is just like kind of the symptom of the greater behavior. So it will be considered under the whole person concept. It won't necessarily tank your security clearance, but it is something to be aware of. Again, just statistics show the the most dangerous season for DUIs is between Thanksgiving and New Year's, New Year's Day and Thanksgiving. So we're in that kind of sweet spot now where there's just a lot more opportunities to go out there and enjoy yourself. And again, just get a little carried away. And I think just for overall general safety, just be safe, be cognizant and know that as you're mentally processing the cost of, you know, a ride share or a cab, finding a DUI will be much more expensive. And I think you had a great point earlier how companies can look out actually for their employees and coordinate rides, or at least just be proactive. I mean, you can be personally proactive, maybe a, a number of your team members, you can kind of talk about how you're going to approach the night. Not, not like, with, I mean, not like you have to make major party plans, but I mean, your, your transportation is a big thing. I mean, I did work for a contractor one time because the party location was far away, but they did coordinate a bus where you could sign up to be on like the party bus. To, I mean, it's a two hour drive away to where the party location was. But that was really like, I think that was a thoughtful thing to make sure that people are commuting in a safe way. Yeah. Get on the bus. <laughs> Get on the party bus, people. Yep. Clearance jobs, party bus it has to happen for our next event. <laughs> so the other topic I want to talk about, I'm actually really excited to talk about this one with you, Jill, because generally you throw me under the bus 
on this one, the sexual behavior topics, I would like the record to show I probably write the most about sexual behavior issues on clearance jobs, but at least 50% of the time it's because Jill told me to write about it. And I'm not sure. Happy holidays, Jill. I'm not sure why, but probably because I have no scruples. I'll talk about anything. So people know with a straight face, but I, again, to the season, I have love actually on my brain. So it's like, you know, nobody wants to be Harry having an affair over the holidays, but I did some research and affairs do go up over the holidays. Makes me sad. Makes my heart sad. Stressful. I blame the in-laws every time. Just too many, you know, events happening. And people, again, we get pushback on this one often at clearance jobs. Hey, and Sean has written about this one too. Sean, it's like, he's, I guess the the unspoken hero of this podcast because we're going to talk about all the articles he's written about. He's written about sexual behavior as adjudicated guideline because I sometimes hear that pushback too. How in the heck in the, you know, this day and age, can the government even consider sexual behavior, sexual issues as a part of the security clearance process? And the matter comes down to anything you're trying to hide. We've seen cases of service members uh, involved in swinger parties. We have seen cases, and that's also important to remember, we have the security clearance guidelines, DOD, and within UCMJ has its own requirements too. So the sexual behavior aspects can come up under UCMJ, where maybe you're having an affair and that somehow is an issue under UCMJ. How the affair would affect your security clearances if you're trying to hide it. And it points back to what you said, the same thing with alcohol consumption. It's just a matter of reliability and trustworthiness. So clearly I'm well briefed on these topics, Jill, because you make me write about them. But what's what's your hot take on sexual behavior issues in the clearance process? Anything that people are trying to hide is always going to be come up as a factor. You know, if anything's tried to be hidden and that can be used against you, like you can be coerced, then that's a major risk factor for the federal government to take on. So that's one major thing. The other is if anything is illegal. So, you know, the reason why I have you write on Pornhub and impacts to their business all the time is because they have come under scrutiny because you can't prove that there aren't children being impacted by the site. And as soon as you as a clearance holder can't, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you're going through like a polygraph and you can't say that that for sure there weren't children involved, then suddenly you have a whole different ball game there. That's when it becomes an issue. So you're right. It's one of those ones where it's like, it's a case by case basis when it comes to sexual behavior. I mean, there are some hard and fast rules, but then there's not, you know I mean? Where it's like, if it's impacting your work and impacting national security increases your risk, you could be coerced for classified information, all those different things that will impact how trusted you are for national security. That's where the federal government starts to have a problem. <laughs> and I think it's always worth noting, like there's no question about sexual behavior on the SF-86. Your initial security clearance application, you're not going to go through that. So we're really just talking about folks who have to undergo a polygraph, law enforcement positions, folks going for higher level positions or positions with the intelligence community where you might face more scrutiny around these issues. And like you said, just being able to answer Honestly, if you've never consumed any illegal content on the internet, regardless of what that content is, I think is pretty important. And when I see that, I'm starting to get on my advocacy hat here, Jill, a little bit, because we've talked so much about mental health stigma, and yet we know that pornography addiction is a major issue. I actually had somebody message me about the security clearance sex talk article that we had on the site and say, hey, just so folks know, there are organizations, Sexual Addicts Anonymous, 
there are actual programs for this. This is an issue. So get help if you need it. And I really appreciate that because I think I we can get a little cheeky about these topics because it is that's they're awkward. So we get, you know, I use sarcasm as a form of armor over myself. So sometimes we can, but but honestly, if you have an issue, again, within the security clearance process, we talk so much about mental health issues should not help you prevent you from getting a security clearance. Being proactive about your mental health is the best thing you can do. I would say the same thing if you have a pornography addiction or something like that, because people, I think, think we think we can stovepipe our problems way better than we can. And so if you have that issue in your in your personal life, it's going to seep into your professional life in some way. And that's why we see the folks who start watching things on their workplace device while they're at their workplace or during a lunch break. If you have an addiction, you need to address it and not be afraid that it's going to affect your clearance eligibility. So I think the stigma that we have around mental health issues obviously could be a clear issue around sexual behavior related issues. And we just know like there was a RAND study about emerging issues for young people in the national security process. And I like commend them for actually flagging the prevalence of pornography in that. Because there is just young people entering federal government have been exposed to it at a much earlier age. It's just out there a lot more. And like you said, these sites like Pornhub continue to get scrutiny for publishing content that's illegal and non-consensual. And if you find yourself viewing that content it could affect your clearance eligibility. No, I think that's a great point in that like it's the next generation coming in, we're, we're trying to attract the next generation of talent. And that's a really important piece of the puzzle to know that we probably are going to run into more issues with different addictions that look different than what they did for the previous generations. And so having some thoughts in place about how we're going to come alongside them. But yeah, Pornhub is being slapped all the time with different regulations, but or even like people banning them from their site, and yet they still continue to grow. So obviously, their base of people who want access continues to grow and their ability to do that despite the bans is continuing on. So it's not a, an issue that's going to go away overnight. Let me be aware of. So now I, I want to pivot to like a little bit more a holiday cheer topic as we close out and talk about what happened happens if you get a windfall of cash over the holidays and how that could affect your clearance eligibility. And that ties into an, a popular article on the clearance job site this year about the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network and how you may be surprised to know that if you have a transaction over $10,000 that gets reported to FinCEN and can affect your clearance. So what were the articles on that that we published and how does FinCEN or how does how do finances play into the clearance process? Well, a lot of times they say finances play into the clearance process. Um, the other side, if, you, if you're if you not like those lucky clearance holders who get a windfall of cash from great uncle Bob over the holidays, <laughs> and instead you're headed into debt in order to finance your holiday season, a lot of times you see debt being the major financial issue that clearance holders run into where they show that they can't keep up with the debts they've accumulated or made unwise decisions. Here again, it's a risk factor that federal government, they're not trying to like make you lose your job and put you further in debt, but they are trying to make sure that candidates in national security are reliable and trustworthy. And that plays out in our debt. But it also, when you get a windfall of cash, that also could signal that somebody wants something from you doesn't always happen. Some people are just lucky like that. Hello, lottery, right? But when you get a windfall of cash, that does need to be reported because they want to know where the source is, what the reasonings are, not because they're trying to track your life, but because they want to know that somebody is not trying to exchange 
cash for classified information or grease the skids for any future flow of classified information to them. You know, it's all about managing risks. Yeah. And I think that's worth noting too. I mean, I think we have the issue of like the espionage on LinkedIn that happens and the, you know, a lot of it is the research branch, the university system, how kind of China has done a really great job of looking to that. I think it's worth noting, like we report on some of those cases and sometimes I see those folks and I'm like, you know what academia pays? And yet this person in China was offering you a really high sum for your quote unquote research. So I think that's just, it is a red flag. Like if you're getting paid for even even a legitimate question or a legitimate aspect of your expertise for more than it's worth, I mean, it's a big push I know for the National Counterintelligence and Security Center to say like China particularly is after any kind of intellectual property they can get even outside of the cleared space. So if you are in the tech industry, if you are in a different industry, they are certainly going to be looking. So if you've find yourself getting a really high freelance rate for your cleared knowledge, then think twice. And because again, they're using within networks. So it might be someone, you know, you know, it's nothing about race nationality. It's the Chinese government itself creating inroads to get this information. And finances should be a red flag if you're getting paid too much for knowledge or information that that could be an issue. Right. We just had an article just recently that it was a, you know, look back on history where the military member had left the military and hoarded classified information with the intent being able to sell it at a later date for whenever they could get the the right amount of cash. So they thought if they could sit on it for just a little bit longer, they can get the money. So this is why it's cases like that, where that's why the government cares when you have an influx of cash showing up. Insider threat is a major issue. And one of the ways to note that is either somebody who's in debt and might be a risk where they could get contacted by a foreign government with ways to remove all of their debt in exchange for information, or they see large cash flow coming in for people, and that sends up the red flag. Happy holidays from your friends at clearancejobs.com. We got some hot topics addressed today, Jill, so I really appreciate it. If you have more questions on these topics or want more context, definitely visit us over at clearancejobs.com. Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at biglylaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. Welcome back. I'm attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser. We're talking this segment about conditional security clearances. And, you know, Lindy, I I think this is something that a lot of people are surprised exists or people who are aware of it, they're sort of peripherally aware. And, and, you know, it's it's sort of like, you know, this Loch Ness monster or, or, you know, this thing that's sort of out there that people have heard about, but nobody's really seen. I guess my initial question for you is how often do you see issues or questions about conditional clearances come up on clearance jobs? Never. (laughs) I like the Loch Ness monster of security clearances, but one of my favorite government security professionals, Perry Russell Hunter, 
was on the National Industrial Security Program Policy Advisory Committee meeting last week. And he was talking about conditional clearances and just reminded me that it existed. And it's one of those things that bubbles up every so often I hear somebody mention it. But again, I've never actually caught one in real life. So I don't know if it's like Bigfoot or so, but I've heard that they exist. I've heard people talk about them. So so I really wanted to geek out and talk about it too, because it's one of those, these are my favorite security clearance topics, Sean, like the wonky, like it's codified in policy. We know it exists, but there's actually some competing policy around it too. Like, I don't know if, if we've talked about this before, but I've read that kind of authority around conditional clearances, I think was granted to DOD CAF in some aspect. And then I wasn't sure if Doha has authority over it as well, but I would, I would guess based on comments that they do. But then I've also read in some, some DCSA language that they've published that Doha does not have authority for conditional clearances. So I guess those are a few like, where do these things come from? Who has authority around them? Have you ever met one in real life, Sean? <laughs> Tell me. Yeah, I feel like it's like that Christmas M&M's commercial where the M&M's are there and Santa Claus comes in and they look at each other and say, you do exist. It's, it's the same sort of deal. To answer your question, Yes, I have seen this. It is a thing. It does exist. And it's actually something that's really important for people to know about who maybe have an issue in their background that's kind of borderline and they're worried like, you know, can I get or keep the clearance with this? So let me give you kind of the quick and dirty on this. Prior to the implementation of Security Executive Agent Directive or CAD for circa 2017, DOD, which is obviously the largest clearance granting entity, generally did not have authority to grant conditional clearances. Or I I should more specifically say DOD CAF did, but it was very rare. Doha didn't really, or at least they said they didn't. And so it was this general understanding in our line of work that like, If you were at DOD, it was a real long shot of even asking for this. So don't waste your time. Other agencies did kind of have uh, implicit authority to do this, but there wasn't really a whole lot out there in writing that was sort of backing that up. So CAD4 comes along. Now, all of a sudden, we have in writing explicit authority to grant conditional clearances. People were kind of looking around going, well, all right, you know, what do we do with this? What does it mean? The general consensus on this is, you know, it's not something that you really ought to bank on per se. It's fairly rare. Agencies are oftentimes hesitant to do it, mainly because it creates a logistical headache for them where, you know, somebody's got to monitor a conditional clearance. Just for the sake of clarity here, so that everybody understands what we're talking about, conditional clearance being you're granted a clearance, but it's conditioned on something. For example, quarterly drug tests or continued timely filing of your tax returns or, you know, something that is a potential issue, but the government says, okay, you know, it's a borderline case. We trust you like 90%, but we want to, you know, trust, but verify. That's where this comes up. Now, again, somebody has to monitor that. And so that's where the headache comes in. And sometimes agencies just don't want to deal with it. If you have, you know, somebody who's a very valuable employee, a borderline, you know, case, but it's a sympathetic one. Those are the scenarios where a conditional clearance might be very valuable. And so sometimes we offer it as part of our defense of our clients. We offer it to the agency and say, okay, you know, look, we understand there's some issues here. We understand that, you know, the person may need a little bit more time to prove themselves. How about a conditional clearance? It's been a mixed bag uh, when it comes to Doha and and some of the other agencies. The sort of KG response that we sometimes get is, well, we haven't really imp- 
implemented that authority. And, and, you know, we argue, well, if you look at CAD4, it doesn't require anything to implement it. It's self-executing, which is a legal term, but it basically means like the authority exists. You don't have to do anything to grant it to yourself, but agencies will, will sometimes tie themselves into these legal knots by saying, well, you know, we don't have internal agency policy, et cetera. I think it's kind of a cop out most of the time, but depending on the agency and depending on the situation, it can be a viable option for folks. I will also add this, and this is trivia for you, Lindy. I'm curious if you've ever heard this term preclusion. No. Okay. So this is something I actually have an article coming out. What is a security clearance preclusion? And a preclusion is kind of another variation, if you will, on a conditional grant. Some agencies, most often the State Department, use this where they have somebody who they would like to keep, typically a diplomat, and the person has, you know, lived overseas for a number of years, maybe they met their spouse while they were serving overseas, and their spouse is a foreign citizen of, you know, country X. And so the State Department says, okay, we're going to allow you to keep your clearance, but it's going to be with a preclusion, i.e. precluding you from working on or having access to classified information dealing with anything pertaining to country X. Because, you know, we are concerned that, you know, spouse's family or spouse themselves could potentially, you know, somehow pressure you to divulge information or maybe even not that directly, you know, they get put under pressure and then, you know, by, by a foreign government and then it somehow, you know, leads to you being pressured. So we're going to just take that off the table and, and, you know, just simply make it so that, you know, you don't have access to that. Yeah, that's super interesting. I love it when you give me a new geeky term I've never heard of before, John. So very <laughs> interesting. I want to wrap up and, and kind of ask you about, so you, this is born out of directives. So in theory, it should apply across the cleared workforce, I would think again, right? But again, I heard about this from Doha and we do know that sometimes there is security clearances are a different beast in the IC or different agencies versus DOD. So maybe talk to that on conditional clearances. Is that something that you're, do those exist within the IC clearance process as well? Or is this just kind of a DOD thing that we're talking about? It is government wide now, you know, prior to the implementation of CAD for it was typically only something we saw in the IC or rarely within DOD proper as applied to military service members or civilians, not folks who were going through the process at Doha. Now it is government-wide. It is something that conceivably applies at every agency. Although again, there are still a few resistors or holdouts. Um, lately, it's it's been the Department of Energy in particular that's been saying, oh, well, you know, we don't have that internal implementation yet. We don't have the authority to do that. And we're like, well, guys, you know, if this is government-wide policy, you don't need anything else beyond that. But we are still running into that resistance on occasion. And I think it has more to do with a lack of interest in, you know, having to monitor these sorts of things rather than an actual resistance to the the theory behind it itself. So bottom line, you know, if somebody has a borderline case or they're they're wondering if you know, maybe they would qualify for a conditional clearance. It is a possibility. It is something that's worth broaching if, you know, certainly if the agency says that they're going to deny or revoke your clearance, if there's a way that you can kind of thread the needle and say, okay, well, I understand that you're concerned that I previously had an alcohol issue, but I went to rehab, it's under control. And now, you know, I will uh, agree to submit myself to random testing 
you know, once a month for 12 months at my own expense. You know, you can kind of get creative with what condition might be palatable to the agency, but it is an option and certainly a heck of a lot better than losing the clearance altogether. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.